If you'll stand as I read our scripture this morning, I'm only going to read the first 11 verses of Psalm 102. This is God's word. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear the prayer. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groanings, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. That it doesn't paint a rosy picture of the realities of life. And in this passage, we enter into a, a difficult place to be for the writer. And we, we resonate with it. And we ask that you would speak to us today words of life, words of comfort, uh, words that bring hope. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to follow along in the, um, the same idea that Brian had started with a phrase that sort of captures what we'll talk about uh, this morning from this passage. And that's this, that when I am experiencing pain and I doubt that God is with me and for me, Psalm 102 reminds me that God hears my prayers. He knows my pain. He keeps his promises. And I can rest in his power. Psalm 102 is listed oftentimes as what's called a penitential psalm, uh, a psalm of sorrow or, or a psalm of regret. Maybe the most popular of those psalms is Psalm 51, right? Uh, where David pours out sorrow and regret over his sin. However, Psalm 102 is a little different than the rest of those psalms. And the, and the difference is this. There's nothing in this psalm that indicates that the affliction being suffered is because of sin. In other words, this is unexplained affliction. There's, there's not a reason given. It's not because the psalmist was living in sin, that, that these things were coming upon him. Isn't that one of the harder questions to ask or answer in all of life? The unexplained sufferings of life. Um, and, and, and he groans or he calls out in this prayer. Uh, I, I saw this prayer, this psalm at first, and I thought, oh, I wanted one of the more happy passages. You know, when you see the schedule come out, you're like, oh, why did I get the psalm of affliction? But then um, as I studied it, an interesting phrase came out. One author wrote this, isn't it gracious that God puts prayers into our mouths and our hearts at times when we do not have them for ourselves? 
And, and this is really the Old Testament version of Romans 8.26. That the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We first see our prayer in this. We see the, um, the, the psalmist cries out in verses 1 and 2. And he, he lists several things uh, about prayer that sort of reminded me as I read them about some of the reasons that we don't pray or, or some of the reasons why it is during times of affliction hard to pray. And the first one picks up in the word, incline your ear to me. I think one of the reasons it's hard to pray in affliction or we, we, we find that we, we just don't want to is because um, we feel like a bother to God. You ever felt like a bother to people? You ever had that sneaking suspicion that when people see you coming down the hallway, they kind of go the other way, right? God included. That, that God sort of says, oh, no, here he comes again. I'm, and I'm going to go this way and avoid him. But especially with affliction because it remains and stays, doesn't it? That we feel like, Lord, we've already talked about this, Lord. I don't want to bother you with this anymore. And the psalmist gets over that and says, incline your ear to me. Meaning, bend down and listen intently to me. Someone once wrote, if our cries do not enter within the veil and reach to the living God then we might as well cease from prayer all at once because we are just crying to the winds. And so he comes, he says, Lord, incline your ear to me. The second reason I think it's hard to pray in affliction is because God may say no or he may say wait. Notice he says here, answer me speedily in the day. That's a, a, an expression of Lord... I know the impatience of my own heart. I know how inclined I am to lose heart. So please don't delay. Please don't say wait. And I think sometimes we avoid prayer to the Lord because we'd rather not hear an answer to our prayers than hear the answer come back as no or wait. Those are hard answers, right? When you're praying to the Lord and something doesn't change. And, and, and it's either no or wait. And so I think of Paul's thorn in the flesh here, right? Where Paul prayed multiple times. And eventually the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Think, think today about an affliction in your life, maybe one present, one past. And, and think of how you would have liked to have been crying out to the Lord for that. And the Lord's answer was, Tony, no, my grace is sufficient. For you. I'm sorry, at that point, I don't have anywhere to go, do I? There's no, what, what, how do I answer that? No, Lord, your grace isn't sufficient. I need you to do this. I mean, I know better than to say that. It's an answer that we're afraid to get. And so we don't want to pray. Yet the psalmist says, incline your ear to me, answer me speedily. I need to hear from you. And then he moves on in verses 3 through 11. He talks about our pain. 
right? This at the preface, it said, this is a prayer of an afflicted one when he faints. And affliction comes in all shapes and sizes. It comes in forms of ongoing health battles, broken relationships, mounting debt, loneliness, abuse, drama in the workplace, betrayal by friends, family estrangement, addictions, getting old, aging parents. They all bring afflictions. Verses 3 through 11 is sort of like a casting of a net over all of the afflictions in life and then just sort of draws it in and says, all of these things that I listed and any others you can think of have uh, an impact on our lives. How do they affect us? Where is the pain in them? And I'm going to use the word pain as an acronym. The first letter, the P, is that they tend to make us pooped, tired. Told my family on the drive out to a Lake party yesterday, I was going to use the word pooped in a sermon, but not the way they were thinking in the car. Tired. It makes you exhausted. Look at it. It says, that, and it uses this idea of similes, the, that suffering and affliction is like this, like this, like that. It's like this. That word repeatedly through verses 3 and 11. It's like smoke in a furnace. It's like smoking something that, that sort of sucks the moisture out, right? When you, when you smoke something or you... You dehydrate something in a furnace, right? You, you set up a, a pottery, a clay, and you take all the water out of it and it hardens. That's what affliction feels like. It feels like you are drying up. And then it says that this is happening in my days and my bones. It happens in my days, in other words, around me and the things outside of me. And it happens in my bones, in my very core. Affliction affects everything about me. It affects my whole life, the parts of my life outside of me and the parts of my life deepest into who I am. It's like grass and a lack of food. It's like the idea here is a picture of being cut off from life, right? When you cut your grass and, uh, and, and you leave sometimes a, a lane or a row of dead cut grass and you can just see it in the day heat, it just withers and dies, right? And it turns brown or when you don't eat, Right? It says here, I forget to eat. Isn't that a, a reality of affliction? That you, you lose your appetite for food and life. And you forget to even eat. It is affecting our heart and our stomach in verse 4. It's spiritual. And it's physical. And then in verse 5, we shrivel up and die. The idea of emaciation, of, of going without food. I'll pause here. I just want to give some applications as we go through this passage this morning. And, and what I would say here is this, that sometimes in our affliction, we tend to go from bad to worse. And what I mean by that is that we cut ourselves off when we're going through trials. We cut ourselves off from life-giving habits, relationships, and from the means of grace. We, we just don't want to meet with the Lord. And we don't want to be around other people. And we don't want to come to the worship of God's people in church. And we, we don't want to come to the table. And we don't want to think about uh, our baptism and, and what Christ has done for us. We just want to shrivel up, curl up in a ball, and die. And that's what affliction does to us. 
So we need to fight against that and not go from bad to worse. Those are the things we need in affliction. When we're going through a hard time, we need the Lord's presence. We need the Lord's people. We, we need His Word. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us as pictured in His Supper and Baptism. The second description here, the A in the word pain, is that we are abandoned. We feel abandoned and lonely. Verses 6 and 7 and 8 give pictures using these birds. That first one, the, uh, the, the owl of the wilderness. Some translations say a pelican. And then the next one is an owl of the wasted places. The, the picture here is of a bird, a, de- a, a, a solitary bird in a desolate place, alone. Owls were called uh, in those days the mothers of the ruins. They showed up when the cities lay desolate and flattened, and the owls would move in and take up nests in these desolate places. Verse 7 says it's like a a lonely sparrow. The picture here is, have you ever seen sparrows where they fill a bush? Like the bush is just full of them. Like they're in there and you can hear them chirping away and they're they're all busy in there and and you could walk over and just they'd scatter because sparrows are um, community. They're communal birds. They find safety in numbers together. And so when you see a sparrow on a rooftop, by itself, exposed, that's a lonely bird, not where it should be. We in affliction tend to do that, don't we? We want to isolate ourselves, but we feel isolated long before we do that. We feel alone. We feel abandoned. We feel like people will not understand us. We feel like the Lord is not understanding us, and we we, we kind of isolate ourselves and become like these these solitary birds in desolate places. And then the curses come, right? They cursed all day long. Where is your God? Where is your God? They use my name as a curse. In, la- in loneliness, what tends to happen is we only have one person to talk to, right? Ourselves. And we tend to fill our thoughts with curses against ourselves. And we give the enemy our ear. Another application here could be we're called to bear one another's burdens. You ever have a person that you've known, family or friend, and and you know they're going through something and you really don't know what to say to them, so you decide to say nothing? You you, you feel awkward and and you don't really have an answer for them. And and so you're not really sure what to say, so you choose just to say, stay away. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to come together to bear one another's burdens. Uh, Sometimes the best thing you can say actually is nothing but being present while you say it and coming alongside one another. People have asked, what can we do to to support Dick and Margaret? Well, obviously we can't all call them this afternoon, right? That's not what they need. But but they don't need all of us to say, well, someone else can call them and I'm not going to do anything. Sometimes just going over and being with someone and and not even saying a word. The next thing is the I, incapacitated. We feel defeated. It says here in verse 9, my my drink and my my bread are not what they're supposed to be. I'm eating ashes and my cup is filled with my tears. 
Things that are usually supposed to be celebrations have turned sour. And in verse 10, we see that the idea is that this is God who is angry at me. After you've walked through affliction long enough, you begin to have those conversations where you think, God is against me. This isn't just my enemies using my name as a curse all day long, but maybe God doesn't love me. And then it says this, he picks me up and he throws me down. And I don't think the psalmist here is saying that this is a little bit. This is what it feels like. Remember as a kid, Saturday mornings, uh, we would sometimes get to watch wrestling, right? The greatest show on earth. And, the, and in, in those days, you know, I don't watch it anymore. Obviously, it's changed over the years like most things on anything on TV has. But back, back, back then, it was wholesome entertainment. Um, <clears throat> I read someone re recently said wrestling is like, a bunch of people not wearing pants fighting for a belt. Um, that's just, but you, it's not worth watching. But back when I was a kid watching it, the body slam was like the end. Like the wrestling match was all this bouncing off the ropes and throwing this and that. But when the one wrestler picked up the other above his head and took him and threw him down in, a, in the body slam, that was the end. That was the punctuation period, exclamation point at the end. It was over at that point. And he feels like here, he, it's over. God has lifted him up and God has slammed him down. And that leads to the, um, the last letter, the end. There's no hope. There's hopelessness. So you feel pooped and tired and exhausted. You feel abandoned and lonely, incapacitated and defeated. And then there's no hope. It's like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. The evening shadow is an interesting picture. You know, the daytime shadow is like if you were standing out here now in the sun, you'd be sweating, and then all of a sudden if a cloud came over, instantly you'd be in the shade. You'd be like, wow, what a difference, right? That's the daytime shadow. The evening shadow was this long shadow that kind of stretched out, right? It imperceptibly becomes dark. And, and that's what affliction does to us. It sort of makes us feel like we're being stretched out until everything is dark. So what do we do? I'm going to read verses 12 through 22. And it begins with the best word in Psalm 102, the word but. And this is where the psalm gets good, but it also gets hard. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever, and you are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion and appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord. And in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. And we'll stop there for a moment. When going through affliction, there are often a lot of questions that come up, aren't there? Why is this happening to me? What can I do to fix this? How long will this last? There are the why, the what, and the how questions. But really, 
here we are directed more to answer the who question. We're given promises that God says he is going to do, and they are based on who he is, because promises are only ever as good as the one making them. And we're encouraged here not to, we're not given answers to why he's suffering this way. We're not told what he's supposed to do, uh, and we're not given a how long is this going to be, but we're told who is for him in the midst of this affliction. The one who is enthroned forever is sort of an overarching statement. Unlike the grass, unlike the evening shadow that passes, one who endures forever is there. And what will he do? Well, first in verse 13, and I've put these to P's. The first P is punctuation, that God puts a punctuation on suffering. In other words, there's a, you know, punctuation in a sentence, there's a break. Sometimes it's an end. Sometimes it's a period. Sometimes it's a comma. It's a rest. Uh, it is a break. That in the Lord, affliction is never eternal and forever. That it has an end. Someone said that affliction is like a darkness in a tunnel where there is no light at the end. We um, had a tunnel up where we lived in Pennsylvania on the Gap Trail, the biking trail called and it's the perfect name. I thought, boy, you couldn't get a better name for a tunnel when you're trying to illustrate this this morning. The Big Savage Tunnel. The Big Savage Tunnel. A little over a half mile long. I remember going through it once. I'd been told, don't go through it without a light. I didn't have a light. I was there. I wanted to go through it. You start going through it, and gradually, because it's amazing how it just kind of gets darker and darker and darker, and, and then you can't see anything. Uh, you can't see anything ahead of you, and you have no idea how long that tunnel is going to last. It feels like forever, and that's how affliction feels, isn't it? That it has no end, and yet the Lord says it does have an end because it says in verse 13, he will arise at an appointed time, and he will show favor. Now, affliction may last our entire lifetime on earth. The, the time of arrival of the Lord may be when we meet the Lord. That may be when that affliction ends. But for those in the Lord, there is at least, there's that promise. That even if that be the case, the Lord has a time. He also has a perspective. He looks down from heaven. That's the second P. He has a perspective. He looks down from heaven. The obvious meaning of that is this. He sees everything. That there's nothing that escapes his notice. But the less obvious meaning of that phrase is this, that he looks down from heaven. For in heaven can exist nothing that is not righteous, holy, and pure. And so God looks down not from a place of where he's sort of putting his thumb on people or he's trying to make uh, difficult and, and he's trying to get revenge on us for not doing something or doing something. He's coming from a place where whatever the reason is for the affliction, it is holy, righteous, and good because he looks from heaven upon us. That's a little less obvious of the meaning of that phrase. Thirdly, <clears throat> he has compassion. I know it doesn't begin with P, but it really does begin with P compassion. You ever thought of that word? Passion with the beginning part of 
the, the, the beginning of C-O-M, come. The passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. The word passion means suffering, and come means with. The with suffering that God has toward us. In other words, it says here, God will hear their prayers and will not despise. That, that he doesn't sit idly, but he comes out of passion. Not as one who has no idea of what suffering is. He hears the prayers of the destitute. The picture here is we have nothing to offer. He doesn't come because we're deserving. But he comes to those who have nothing to offer. Destitute, poor, naked, blind. We don't even see our needs sometimes. And he comes to them and he hears their prayers. What a wonderful promise. I think of James's exhortation to draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. We're invited here not to flee from the Lord in our afflictions, to turn to God. We tend to turn different ways, don't we? In affliction, where do we tend to turn? We either turn one of two ways, typically. We either turn inwardly and just die and shrivel up, or we turn outwardly and complain to everybody about our afflictions. Right? But we tend not to turn to the Lord. Uh, and maybe another reason for prayerlessness is I don't have anything to offer. I don't have any wisdom or any strength. I don't have any holiness. I don't have any health or finances. I don't have whatever it takes. It's an admission of, I just don't have what it takes, Lord. The fourth P is God has a plan. It says he will appear in glory. We don't have time to look at it, but if you have time later, go back and look at verses 13 um, through 22, and you'll see a bit of a movement. The first part talks about the future, the middle part talks about the present, and the last part talks about the future. And that's a really good pattern to follow when going through affliction. To look at the future that God has promised you, and then to realize that that means that God is working in the now, even when you can't see it. And then to go back to and cling to the hope of what He's promised in the future again. Our tendency is to get so bogged down just in the now. But I can leave that with you. He has a plan, and his plan is that he will appear in glory to set free his people. In other words, he comes in glory in the midst of our weakness. His glory appears where? It doesn't appear in heaven. It appears amongst his people. That God, in our weakness, God shows up. That was what our New Testament reading highlighted for us. And what does he do there? Well, he comes with a purpose, to build up and to use his people. There's a wonderful little book I would encourage you to read on purposes for suffering that comes from uh, Thomas Boston. It's the book, The Crook in the Lot, and it lists a, a whole host of reasons why God would use suffering in the lives of his people, both individually as believers and followers of Christ and as a church. And he gives some, for example, witness to demonstrate uh, that his grace is perfected in weakness. I had a friend once who uh, talked about affliction this way, and he said, when we, when we think about our afflictions, uh, it is helpful to take this perspective that we are stewards of them. It's a bit of an odd statement, isn't it? That we're stewards of our affliction. We typically think of stewardship of the things like possessions and money and gifts, good things, not, not things like affliction. But when God brings affliction into the lives of his people, we have at that time an opportunity to steward those afflictions 
that his glory might be manifested in the midst of them. That even in our weaknesses, his strength may be seen. That even in our sorrows, that his unfading joy might be evident. That we would see an increasing in our faith in Christ. That we'd see a growing in our humility before him, a, a, a fixation of our hope upon him. And so we move on then to the end of this passage, verses 23 to 28. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, and they will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. I was working on this last point of the sermon earlier this week. I was sitting on my deck. It was maybe the only really cool morning of the week. Uh, I'm sitting out there in the early morning, cool, calm. The birds were chirping. It was just a beautiful morning. I thought to myself, Lord, can I just live here? I just stay out here. Just, just cut and paste this. And just cut and paste this. Have you ever thought of that to yourself? Just, just, Lord, just cut and paste this. And then my phone rang. Right? And the day began. The reality is most of my days change before 10 a.m. There's a plan and a calendar and things. But by 10 a.m., most of my days are completely different all of a sudden. Right? And, and, and I thought, Lord, can I just sit here and stay here? For the day, the, the temperature won't go up, and the sun won't move, and the birds will stay, and this would be, this would be great. And then the phone rang, and you know, I thought to myself, "Thank you, Lord, that the phone rang." You know why? Because I'm not made to be contented or comfortable in this world. I'm not. God did not create me or call me and recreate me that I might live on my back deck for eternity alone, right? I was created for more. And the phone has to ring sometimes to ruin my plans for the day in order for me to awaken to that reality and to walk into it with God together. Now, some of our trials in life, they're inconvenient. They're pebbles in the shoes, as my kids would like to say when I complain about them. Dad? That's a first world problem, you know, when your second car doesn't start and you're having a conniption about it. Dad, that's a first world problem. But then others of our afflictions are unimaginable. They're unrelenting. They're inexplicable. And, and we yearn for something that is unchanging in this world that we can hold on to, like my back deck. You know the, song, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress? A Mighty Fortress is our God, a bulwark never ceasing or never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. That, that idea of a bulwark, we went out on a boat once fishing, and it wasn't exactly the best day to go out fishing. It was one of those days that made you want to let your breakfast overboard. And you start to kind of look for something to hold on to, like a railing. On the boat. Now, you know what another name for a railing on a boat is? A bulwark. 
something that's not moving. Unfortunately, in a boat, it is still moving. And we tend to do that, don't we? We tend to try to find things in this world that we think won't be moving, but they're just like the railings on a boat. Relative to the boat, they may not be moving, but relative to the ocean, they are. They could be a job. They could be friends. They could be material wealth. They could be our health. They can be all of those things that seem to match up, don't they, with the afflictions that God brings, where, where God kind of takes away the, the, the railings and says, you're not going to find help clinging to that in the storm. There's only one that you'll find hope to cling to in a storm. The picture of Christ, right, on the sea in the boat with his disciples asleep in the bow. And, he, and he, he being the only one who is unchanging. The writer of Hebrews takes verses 25, 26, and 27 and quotes them verbatim in chapter 1 of Hebrews referring to Christ. That he, the Son, is superior because he laid the foundations of the earth. He did these things. And so the, the writer of Hebrews takes these exactly out and says, this is talking about Christ. What may not be as obvious to us in reading this psalm is that verse 23 and 24 are probably also talking about Christ. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of days. You whose years endure for, throughout all generations. Jesus, the one who laid the foundations of the earth, the one who has endured over all generations, was cut short. Uh, the same word of shortening of days, the same Hebrew word is used in Daniel chapter 9, where it speaks of Christ being the anointed one, being cut off. Generally, this word is only used in, this, in the Old Testament about reaping a harvest, of, of cutting grain, right? Taking a sickle and, and cutting down the wheat or cutting down the grain. It's used twice here and in Psalm uh, 89, and then also a, a similar word in Daniel chapter 9 to refer to the cutting away or the cutting short of the anointed one, of Christ. And many commentators, therefore, believe that verse 23 is speaking prophetically of Christ, of the eternal Son of God who was cut short, who became the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with affliction and grief, and whose days were cut off at the cross, that we might have a pardoning of sin, that we might be brought into an eternal relationship with God. As one of the Puritans would say, God has only one son without sin. He has no sons without affliction. And it was by Christ's wounds that we are healed. I want to close reading this, this phrase and then one scripture. Scripture teaches us that God brings affliction into our lives. Affliction here being defined as something that you are overwhelmed by, something that you do not honestly believe you can handle. You know, that's a reality. God gives us things we can't handle. I, I know sometimes people say, no, no, God, God will never tempt you beyond what you're able. But He does. But He gives a way of escape. And the way of escape isn't a habit or a person or a better job or some other answer, the way of escape is Christ. He brings things you can't handle in order to teach us how small we are. 
He gives us particular things that we cannot handle to teach us the important lesson that we really don't handle anything. Why does God do this kind of thing to us? Because he knows we desperately need it. The grace of affliction. Or as Paul would say in 2, Timothy, or 2 Corinthians 1.9, that God does this so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so may we turn to God. May we turn to Christ in our affliction, the one who was afflicted for us. For some of us, we need to let go of the things we hold on to in the place of Christ. The things that we think will provide answers, but they won't. Eventually, they fail us. For those of us who do know Christ, we need to remember to bear one another's burdens. And, and even in our afflictions, we are not spared from afflictions. Now, that is a false teaching that if you come to Christ, you will no longer face afflictions. In fact, I think when you come to Christ, the presence of afflictions becomes even a little more difficult to navigate. As a child of God, why am I suffering this? But let us turn to Him the one who endures for all ages, that he might use us, that he might even use our afflictions, that we would steward them for Christ, that uh, in our weakness, his strength would be demonstrated, that in our times of need, that his grace would be made perfect in us. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the realism of your word, it, not sugarcoating life and saying, oh, everything will be fine, um, that life will become easy if I give it all to Christ and and uh, we know that's not true. I pray that we, at Mercy, that, that we would be uh, a church that lives differently in the midst of affliction. Uh, that we would gravitate to you in them, crying out to you. That we would uh, come alongside each other. That we would rejoice with those who rejoice and that we would truly weep with those who weep. That we would be a church of much celebration, but also much weeping. That we might see your strength and your joy and your power and your grace perfected in our midst. Especially in our afflictions. Because we do need them. Turn us toward you in them, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.